Hello, and welcome to the Millennial Nutritionist Podcast. I'm Isla Garcia, Master's Degree of Nutrition Science and Registered Dietitian, and I'm going to make weight loss realistic, sustainable, and uncomplicated for your busy lifestyle. On this podcast, me and my team of registered dietitians will decipher the latest nutrition research, dissect fad diets, and discuss social media trends for you so you can feel confident knowing what to eat to achieve your health goals. Research suggests that most weight loss programs aren't successful, but my experience has taught me that this is not because the participants aren't committed. It's because those diets are designed by non-nutrition professionals and center around severe restrictions. We are here to provide the facts about the science of weight loss so you can have the success you want and continue living your best life. Welcome back to the Millennial Nutritionist Podcast. My name is Isla, your founder, host, and CEO of the Millennial Nutritionist. I get so many questions about gut health, which is understandable because food goes into our gut, but I don't always know all the answers to them. And I was able to connect with a GI doctor. Um, so, I was so I'm so excited to have you on today, Dr. L. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of like your training, what you do, so we know why we can trust you as we kind of go on today? Absolutely. Um, So I'm MD trained. So um, I'm a physician and I'm board certified in internal medicine. And then I am in the process of doing my subspecialty training in gastroenterology. So my gastroenterology fellowship, I'm about halfway through. And I spend all day, every day treating patients about anything to do with their digestive health. So their stomach, colon, liver, pancreas, all of it. We talk a lot about food and how food influences their digestive symptoms. Awesome. So does that mean that like, do you do surgery as well? Or is it more like outpatient? Is it a mix? So it's a mix of procedures. So colonoscopies and endoscopies, Mm -hmm. um, that's the camera through the mouth. And then um, a mix of seeing patients in the clinic as well. It's a pretty even 50-50 split um, between procedures and um, seeing patients in the clinic. And then we also see patients in the hospital. Gotcha. Okay. So are a lot of the conversations that you have with your patients, are they like preventative? Is it more like they have like a little thing and then you have to talk to them about how to solve it to prevent it for the future? Or is it more just like you're catching at the end? What does that look like? So the procedures, a lot of the procedures we do are more um, preventative things. So like for colon cancer screening, um, screening people who have increased risk for esophageal cancer. Um, But in clinic, a lot of it has to do with managing chronic gastrointestinal symptoms. So constipation, heartburn, diarrhea, abdominal pain are probably the four most common things I address in my clinic. And food plays a big part of it. So we talk about food, nutrition, dietary symptoms, identifying dietary triggers. Um, So that's why I'm really excited to be on this podcast. Yeah. I used to work in a hospital, like when I was a beginning dietitian and we had a big GI unit and I was always so excited when I got like a GI consult. Cause I knew that those doctors knew like what they were talking about when it came to nutrition, as opposed to like a ortho consult or something like that. So I'm yeah. so excited to have you on too. <laughs> um, well, working with dietitians. yeah. So, um, the article that I kind of picked for us today, we always do a warm up article, but it's kind of related. There were so many different angles I could pick with this, but I try to just find like a broad one. So this article just came out, um, on, we on usmagazine.com 
in February, uh, talking about the best probiotic supplements for weight loss. I thought super relevant. And I don't know about you, but I've been seeing probiotic supplements like everywhere recently. Um, and I wanted to kind of get your two cents. So basically this article is kind of like a review of, it looks like popular supplements that I've been seeing a lot lately. Um, but what did you kind of think of the article? Um, like, did you agree with like what they were saying? Any other thoughts? First, I'll say probiotics are so appealing. There's so much marketing about them. It's It sounds so perfect. You can take this pill and it can fix your GI problems, your weight loss issues. Unfortunately, I don't think it's quite, the evidence is quite there yet. I, I think it's very promising. And I do think in the future, down the line, we may have you know better customizable probiotic supplements. We might be able to find who can really benefit from probiotics, but I don't think it's as like one size fits all as a lot of the marketing or this article kind of makes it sound like. From the GI space, the best evidence we have for probiotics is for very specific conditions. So something like C. diff, so especially a specific kind of bacterial infection or people with inflammatory bowel disease and have a surgery related to that and preventing infection of that their surgical, we call it surgical pouch that they artificially make. So that's really where the evidence for probiotics is very strong and the GI societies recommend that. For conditions like IBS, inflammatory bowel disease, there is promising evidence that the microbiome plays a big part in symptoms as well as obesity, but it's not quite there yet. There's nothing that's enough to support, oh, you should definitely go out and take a probiotic for that. Yeah, that's what we kind of say too, because I find research that says that people that are lower BMI, they do have a healthier gut, but the the quite there isn't, I don't find a relationship quite with being like to improve, if you improve your gut, then you will lose weight type of thing. So I'm always like, let's improve our gut. But yeah, that like total causation isn't kind of found yet. Exactly. Like the cause and effect is not quite there yet. And there's nothing that shows us that taking a pill will really improve your gut microbiome. But I I do think that the evidence is there that the microbiome of people who are obese is different from those who aren't obese. So there is definitely a microbiome change, but it's just that taking a pill may not fix that. So there are other factors that affect your gut microbiome. Right. Right. Okay. And then like what you were saying about, um, when it is recommended, when you have kind of these more extreme conditions, why is it recommended to take it if you have one of those versus just like an everyday person? Is it like you just like no have no gut bacteria anymore? Or can you kind of explain the difference there? It's because they've actually done cl- like clinical trials where they've compared people with and without a probiotic supplement. And then they found there's a very clear benefit to taking a probiotic supplement in those patients. And so whenever like a medical society recommends something, they really need stronger evidence. And it's not Mm -hmm. to say that there are some people who may benefit from a probiotic supplement. It's just that there's just not enough to support everybody going out and spending, you know, $100 a month on a probiotic supplement. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, is there any like shred of evidence or anything to this, if somebody like really wants to be on one, like, is there a safe way to kind of go about picking one or do you just like across the board or like, just don't even mess with them? No. So I think my general approach to probiotics for pretty much any GI symptom, just because I do think that the microbiome plays a big role in a lot of digestive symptoms, weight loss, it's worth a try. If you want to try probiotics, 
you can try one. If you don't feel like it's helping and it's just hurting your wallet, then you should stop. So that's my overall gist to it. Um, and then researching the strains, trying to find out which ones are most beneficial is um, helpful as well, because I don't think all probiotics are created equally. Um, so I know in this particular article, they talked about lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. Those are two particular strains that are upregulated in the, in the gut microbiome of people with a normal BMI. So they were kind of trying to pick probiotic mm -hmm. strains around that. So you could try to look and research which um, probiotic supplements kind of promote those um, bacteria. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So if somebody like really want to go on a probiotic supplement, is it something that they could like research on their own or is it something they like, who would, or would they like talk to a specific doctor? Like what would, what would that process look like? I think you can do, there's definitely a good research out there. Um, I think talking to your doctor is always worthwhile. I think prim some primary care doctors might be able to help you pick one out and then talking to a GI doctor would be helpful as well. Um, in the GI space, a lot of what we're doing is kind of addressing more symptoms like bloating, IBS, diarrhea. Um, so the ones that we typically suggest are um, Align and then VSL number three. Those are the ones we, in our practice, usually find that there's the best evidence for. Okay. Yeah. I recognize a line two on that list. It's like the least like sexy looking one like on that exactly. USC article. They're the ones that don't have all the fancy marketing right. and they're not on social media channels. Um, so sometimes picking the boring stuff is best, but I think they've been around for a very mm -hmm. long time. Um, and they have had quite a few like clinical studies related to that. So I would try to steer towards the less sexy one sometimes. Is that the same as cultural or that's different? Oh, cultural is another good one. Okay. It's different, but that's another brand that um, it's familiar and that we commonly recommend. Do you feel like you're tired of trying every new diet out there whenever you're ready to lose weight, but you never really find long-term success because it's either too restrictive or just not conducive to your lifestyle? Well, then let me tell you about our three-month lifestyle reset program. This is an individualized weight loss approach where you'll be going through our proven six-step method and you'll be led by a registered dietitian. By becoming a client of the program, you'll be able to learn how to control your weight, increase your energy and confidence, and also improve your overall well-being. Not to be dramatic, but a lot of clients tell us that they actually change their lives by going through the program and finally find a sustainable weight loss solution when they actually haven't found that with any other program. If you are interested in becoming a client, sign up for a discovery call on our website, themillennialnutritionist.com with me, Isla Garcia, and I'll help match you with one of our registered dietitian coaches based off of your challenges and their nutrition expertise. If you're ready to find a sustainable weight loss solution in a non-judgmental and encouraging environment, I hope you'll connect with us soon. Um, all right, well, moving on to kind of the bulk of our interview today, um, I wanted to kind of leave the floor open to you because you are on TikTok and you're really active. That's how I found you. Um, and so I feel like you probably know a lot of the misconceptions that are on social media. Um, and so could you kind of talk to us maybe about like your top five misconceptions that you see with GI health on social media? Um, so probiotics is one. We already covered that. Um, I think another thing is there is a lot about food and 
food is the cause of your symptoms and the reason you have this digestive issue, it's all about the food. And I think food plays a, an, an important role, but I think the main concern I have as a GI doctor is that believing that food is the root cause of everything leads to food over restriction. And that's a major thing that I encounter in my practice that patients come in, they're eating a very limited diet mm. and they tell me I can only eat chicken and rice and anything beyond that causes any symptoms. And I think that's just not good for your mental health, but also not good for your gut microbiome. So I think trying to steer away from the idea that food causes every single symptom that you're having. If it's not just food, like what are other causes of like GI distress? Yeah. So I think stress plays a big role. Um, and for conditions like IBS, functional dyspepsia, um, a lot of it has to do with kind of how the brain and the gut signal to each other. And so for a lot of those patients, eating food in general will cause symptoms, mm -hmm. not anything, not any specific type of food, but just food in general. So kind of trying to address that in a different way. Um, there are medications for that, but also behavioral therapies to kind of retrain the gut and mind. We call them gut brain behavioral therapies. So there's a lot of different approaches to kind of regulating your GI symptoms that are separate from food. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. What is another misconception that you see a lot? I think just the overabundance of supplement use in the social media and everyone has a special supplement that will fix your problem. And one thing we see, um, so GI doctors also take care of the liver. One thing we see in a lot of young patients is they've taken a supplement and then it actually affects their liver because mm -hmm. a lot of these supplements aren't regulated. Um, and so that's probably one of the main causes of kind of liver dysfunction, um, potentially liver failure in young patients. So I think just to be really careful about what supplements you're taking and to run that by a doctor, make sure that there's not a known liver toxicity to that. And really to make sure that it's benefiting you and that you actually need to take the supplement. Do you ever see patients who have like liver, uh, problems because of like over supplementation? It's always something I heard about, but I never really saw it in the hospital. Yeah, we, we do see quite a few pa young patients. So I had a patient who was taking a workout supplement for a number of months, and then he started to look yellow and it turned out that his workouts, we we think it was his workout supplement because really there was nothing else in his history that was affecting his liver. And once he stopped it, it kind of went back to normal. So it's not uncommon. It's, and usually in a young person, that's kind of what our like first, um, first instinct is because they don't have some of the other factors like alcohol and other um, influences on their liver at that age. Yeah, that's crazy. Like I, I always did, they always talked to us about it in school and I never know if I was just like saying that just because, but that's crazy that you actually do see that. And I think so many people don't realize that it is unregulated. Like they think anything on the shelf should be fine. Um, could you speak to like why the liver would be impacted just in case somebody doesn't understand like why it does, it can damage it? Yeah. So your liver is really responsible for a lot of the metabolism through your body. So everything that goes through your GI tract is then sent to your liver to be processed. So like the gut, um, intestines, everything that's absorbed there, it connects directly to the liver. And then from there, it goes to the rest of the body. Mm -hmm. Um, so your liver is really the first one that's exposed to, um, 
whatever you take in from your bloodstream. Um, and then your liver and also your kidney is also responsible for filtering out your blood. Um, so those are kind of the two organs that tend to be affected most by what we eat. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Which is crazy. Cause I feel like a lot of supplements are like marketed as like detoxing or cleansing when it could actually be just doing the opposite. Yes. That's number three. You do not need a liver <laughs> detox. Um, yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I think the idea that you need to t- have a detox to clean your liver or regulate your liver, um, there's just no evidence for that. Um, but and your liver itself is the detoxifying age, um, organ in your body. So your liver kind of filters out and cleans out any toxins in your blood, which is why it gets injured so commonly. So you don't need a liver detox. That's definitely a fancy marketing tool. If somebody is worried about like their liver health, like what would you say to them? Like, is there anything that somebody should be considering if they're like, yeah, but I just want to make my liver healthier. Or should they just like leave it alone? So there are a couple of things that have been shown to be really good for your liver. Um, I think the first thing is you can always go to your doctor and get your liver test checked. So um, there are um, there's a standard set of labs called a liver function panel, and it's a pretty good marker of if your liver is healthy or not. Say it's normal, you still want to do what you can to optimize your liver health. Um, so things you could do are minimize your alcohol intake. Um, That's not the sexy recommendation, but I think there's a lot of a a new trend towards alcohol-free cocktails, mocktails. So I think that's really great about what's going on in social media right now. Um, So we're curious people. Coffee is actually beneficial for your liver. Oh, good. I thought you were going to say take it away. (laughs) Yeah. So keep drinking your coffee. Um, I know there's a lot of hate around caffeine and coffee as well, but, you know, drinking one to two cups of coffee a day has been shown to be protective for developing fatty liver disease. Um, Maintaining a healthy BMI will protect you from fatty liver disease, um, which is probably now going to be the number one cause of liver, um, chronic liver disease in the United States. And then exercise independent of your body weight. So all the boring things that your mom or your doctor told you to do, that's probably what's going to help your liver and actually not a fancy liver pill or detox. Yeah, no, that's what we always recommend too. I feel like it always just comes back to like eating your fruits and vegetables, maintaining a low body weight, trying to be hydrated, exercising, which is just a good thing to say that it really does help with everything. It doesn't just help with weight loss. What about a fourth misconception that you see often on social media? I get a lot of hate for this, but parasite cleanses. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, I think I'll, I think I'll address this here. Yeah. Um, there are parasites. I don't disagree with that. Um, you know, and there are parasites that can cause symptoms. So one of the most common causes of chronic diarrhea is a parasite called Giardia. Mm-hmm. But you can be tested for that. And there are good stool-based testing to test for common parasites in the United States. You don't need to get a parasite cleanse if they're if you don't have a parasite in your body. So you don't need to prophylactically take a parasite cleanse. And I think the the Paragard, which is what they're advertising for parasite cleanses right now, there's just not really, it hasn't really been studied. It's again, not a supplement that's not regulated. So I'd I'd be really careful about taking it without any um, recommendations from a doctor and without fully understanding the impact it might have on your body. 
Yeah, that's crazy. I like forget that's a trend because I just feel like that's like such an outrageous one. <laughs> um, what like if somebody is really concerned and they're just really convinced they have a parasite, like what are symptoms they would look out for to know like, no, you do, maybe you should look into this. Weight loss. So mm-hmm. paras- a lot of parasites can can like consume your nutrients in your digestive tract. So that's something to look out for. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, having chronic diarrhea would probably be the other issue. So like new onset diarrhea um, and trying to investigate that a little bit better. Um, but hopefully that's something you would go and discuss with your doctor and, and then they can do the appropriate testing for you. Yeah. So these videos that I see of people like, are like, I like was bloating and then I did the parasite cleanse and now I'm better. Like, are those like legit then? Or like, or is, what do you think about those videos? I think there's a really great placebo effect for a <laughs> lot of medication. So the, that's been shown in clinical trials um, that there is a placebo effect for a lot of medications. If you believe that something is going to work, especially with GI symptoms, your mind gut connection is so strong. That's my take. I, you know, I've never actually had my own patient come in and tell me about their parasite cleanse. So I think that's a little bit, I, I'd like to kind of see someone in the office about mm-hmm. that and kind of investigate that further. But I think like you, I never knew it was a trend until like someone else on TikTok pointed me to it because I think maybe the algorithm knew that it wouldn't be something that I would be interested in. Yeah. My dog actually had Giardia. <laughs> Was why I kind of but it was like intense. Like I mean, he couldn't keep anything down. He was like throwing up, having like spray diarrhea everywhere. Like it was obviously something's wrong, not just like kind of walking around feeling like a little bloated type of thing. So, um, yeah, yeah. What it? Hopefully he's better. (laughs) He was fine. I was like, how? I didn't know that people still got this. I thought it was something you got from like camping, but they think he like ate, I guess, like deer poop or something in the dog part. And yeah, he's better. It was like kind of an instant (laughs) fix. Um, he got on it, but. Um, what is your fifth misconception with, um, GI health that you see on the internet? I'll talk about the low FODMAP diet, because I think that's Mm -hmm. a really common diet that, um, patients with IBS or people with chronic GI symptoms try. Mm -hmm. So I would say the misconception is that you need to be on it long-term for your GI symptoms. And I think Mm -hmm. the low FODMAP diet, there's great evidence for it for IBS symptoms. Um, but really the diet should be a trial of being on the low FODMAP diet. So there's a very specific restriction phase. Mm -hmm. And then the goal is actually to try to introduce as many of those foods back to your diet. And so I see a lot of patients who have been on the low FODMAP diet or some other version of a restrictive diet for months, years. And so with that, any time they then try to reintroduce their food, their gut microbiome has changed. Mm-hmm. And they actually are sensitive to reintroducing the food, but that's just because they've been restricting too long. So I really recommend anybody who wants to be on a diet like that, work with a dietitian actually to kind of try to identify what are your true food triggers and what is the best way to um, identify and limit your diet to optimize your GI side effects without over restricting. Yeah. That one. Yeah. That one was always a scary one when I got those consults. Cause it's like so hard to talk about within like one consult. I felt like it was like way more of like an outpatient thing, but you are saying that it is really indicated for people who have some sort of GI symptom or like a problem, right? Like IBS or something, not just for like the lay person, because I see sometimes people do it for weight loss and I'm like, what in the world? 
Oh yeah, no, I, there's no evidence for weight loss and really it's only been studied for IBS. Some people try it for, you know, related symptoms like chronic diarrhea that's mm-hmm. like without abdominal pain. So that's separate from IBS, but um, really it's mostly been studied in IBS. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I think the interesting thing with gut health too, is like, because it's so trendy right now, if like anything from IBS, like ends up looking like it's a solution, then it ends up trickling down. Cause I even remember a couple of years ago, um, before I moved to Texas, I was talking to somebody who's moving to Austin and he was like, yeah, like the trend now in Austin is to do like the low FODMAP diet for like health. I was like, what in the world? Cause you're cutting out so many foods. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of these, a lot of the low FODMAP diet, you know, it cuts out gluten and gluten free diets in itself, there's the idea that it's healthy, but unless you have a gluten intolerance or celiac disease, there's actually evidence that going gluten-free just for health reasons is detrimental to your health. There's cardiac risk benefits because you're eating mm. fiber. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and it's expensive. Yeah. <laughs> actually, um, the gluten-free diets associated with obesity as well. So really, oh, wow. Yeah. So kind of being careful about being on a diet just for your health reasons, um, without understanding why you're on that diet and and what the indications are. I'm kind of getting from all of your misconceptions that the kind of the biggest thing I feel like you're saying, or at least that I'm hearing is that these interventions should kind of be taken if you have specific symptoms, not really preventative. Is that right? Or am I missing that? I think so. I think because a lot of these healthy trends are, oh, you should do this for your, to improve your health. And I think just to be really careful, I think where you're getting your information from as well. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. So being sure that you trust and you um, know the qualifications of who's giving their recommendation and if they've done their research. Um, So we had some audience questions that would be good to pick your brain about. Um, If you ever want to submit a question for anything, um, I always ask about a week before on our Instagram page, the.millennial.nutritionist. So these are the questions we got for you. Um, So the first question was, do you need to take a probiotic supplement or is it fine to eat yogurt slash a diverse diet? So I know you kind of already talked about probiotics, but maybe like, what do you find in the research about like food versus a supplement? I actually am someone who promotes more of a prebiotic focus rather than probiotics. So prebiotics are actually the fiber and what are um, the in the food that we eat that mm-hmm. feed the bacteria in our gut microbiome. Mm-hmm. So I don't personally take a probiotic supplement, but I really try to focus on eating a very diverse source of plant-based prebiotics. So fruit, vegetable, beans, whole grains, nuts, I think doing all of that is probably the best way to nourish your gut microbiome rather than taking a um, probiotic supplement. So I, you can try it, a probiotic. I'm not against it, but I think if you really, if you're going to take a probiotic, you should also focus on the prebiotic aspect of your diet. Yeah, totally. I agree. I made like a video about this the other day because I was so tired of seeing these supplements because <laughs> like I, you know, I, there's just so many benefits to eating food other than taking like a supplement too. Like you're saying, like maybe eventually the research will come out that says like, we all need to be on the supplement, which is great. But I still don't think it's ever going to hundred percent replace all the benefits you get from food, like exactly. having fullness and being able to also have all these vitamins and minerals that are in food exactly. that aren't always in a probiotic supplement or just like being able to, I don't know, like be hydrated from water and stuff like that. And so I feel like a lot of people forget about that because it's not easily marketed as well. Yeah. And the probiotic will replace what you're then eating the other like 
eight hours in the day. It won't, if you're eating, you know, food that is not good for your microbiome, then it won't like fix everything. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, the next question we got was, um, how much influence do you think like natural flavors and artificial flavors affect GI issues? I get a lot of questions about this too, and try to skirt around it, (laughs) but what are your two cents about like this topic? I don't really feel like they, um, affect GI symptoms in that in themselves. I know people are concerned about kind of their harmful effects on our health in general. Um, and I think that there's some evidence to support that, but if you're specifically trying to address a GI symptom, mm-hmm. I don't think it plays a significant enough role. Okay. So again, maybe just like trying to put your effort on caring more about like eating a, a healthier diet and getting active and stuff like that. Exactly. But I don't think to be so stressed about, oh, I really can't eat this food because there's natural flavors in it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, the next question, what are warning signs that you should consult a GI MD for? I'm going to be making a TikTok about this soon. Okay. Things to be concerned about. So I think anytime you see blood in your poop, Mm. It's something to be concerned about. I am so this is colon cancer, colon cancer awareness month. Mm-hmm. And there is an alarming trend towards colon cancer in young patients, so patients under age 40. And so often young people are ignored and they're told, oh, it's just hemorrhoids or don't worry about it. But I think a lot of the patients that I end up seeing and diagnosing with colon cancer, they did have blood in their stool. So not mm-hmm. to ignore that as a problem. Um, I think the other thing to not ignore is I think any GI symptom where it's making you hard to live your life. Like Mm -hmm. if you have chronic bloating, pain, diarrhea, there are doctors that can help. And I think a lot of people are embarrassed to talk about their GI symptoms. I know when I was a medical student, I had my own GI issues and I didn't want to see a doctor about that. And I was a medical student. (laughs) Um, So I think just to normalize, it's very common. Um, I think that's another thing I try to promote through my social media channel is that GI conditions are common and it's okay to talk about constipation, diarrhea, abdominal pain, nausea. Like it's okay to talk about that and to normalize and not be embarrassed about talking about those things. What could you specify a little bit more about like, what does that mean that it would affect your life? Does that mean like you can't sit through like a college class or like that you, I don't know what another example would be, but yeah. Could you get a little bit more specific on that? Yeah, I think it could be in any way if you're afraid to drive to work or, um, you know, I saw this TikTok once about this girl saying like, oh, before she leaves the house, she has to take an emodium, which is to prevent diarrhea. So if you're doing things that, you think back like a year, a year or two ago, you're like, I didn't need to do this. And my life has been significantly affected by my GI symptoms. I think you should talk to a doctor about it, you know, at least to rule out anything scary, because Mm -hmm. I think often I see people ignore their symptoms until it's been going on for two, three years. And, you know, it, some people are really distressed. They tell me, oh, I can't live my life the way I used to. And I think that's just really like, it's really distressing. And it's really sad when there are people out there who want to help. And then if they do want to, if they are concerned by something you just said, and maybe think that they do need to go to a GI doctor, like how would they go about finding one? Do you like go through your primary care physician and they find somebody? Is it like, you just look it up online? What process is that like? 
I think it really depends on your insurance. So mm. I think it's depending on your insurance coverage, you may need to be referred from primary care to a GI doctor. Um, but I think seeing your primary care doctor is a good start. You know, primary care, I was a primary care doctor back when I was an internal medicine resident. And, you know, we were, we are trained to kind of do a initial workup for GI symptoms. And I think it's helpful to kind of get that basic workup before you go to their G, your GI doctor, because they can then really focus on kind of the more specialized testing and workup and treatment for your GI symptoms. Um, the next question we got a really specific question. I feel like how to improve motility when dealing with SIBO. I feel like SIBO is also a trend. I don't hear like too much about maybe it died a while back. Um, but what do you think about that question? SIBO is a very controversial topic in the GI space. And I would say gastroenterologists also don't oh. agree on the right way to treat SIBO and the right, um, the right approach to it. So I think if you truly have a motility issue and that needs to be diagnosed with, you know, formal testing, um, then there are prokinetic agents that you can take, but I think I can't really recommend anything specific um, without more information, without testing. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I saw it a lot online, like a couple years ago. And even when I worked in the hospital, I think I saw one patient who was actually diagnosed with SIBO and I don't even remember what they did for him. So it's totally not common. I don't know if it's something else that is diagnosed for something else, but yeah. So kind of, you're just saying maybe like, go ask your um, GI doctor or your primary care about the symptoms first is what you're saying. And I think this is, it's very specialized. So I think it's not something that you should ever follow recommendations on the internet or um, online about. I think it's very individualized because people with SIBO have, you know, very different anatomies or different um, motility issues. So it's, it's individualized. And I would say even doctors disagree about the right way to approach SIBO. Um, the last audience question we got are uh, foods to stop and avoid bloating. Please give it to me because every single one of my patients, always clients say they have bloating. So what would you say? Um, so there are definitely foods that are gas promoting. So mm. certain foods like some beans, um, some vegetables and lactose products can cause bloating. But again, I think steering away from this like over restriction idea um, to really try to work and identify what causes my bloating. Cause I think everyone has slightly different triggers mm. and for some people they bloat no matter what they eat. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, con- there's a condition called dysenergic defecation. I'm not sorry, abdominal phrenic dysenergia. Um, and that is when you bloat no matter what you eat. And a oh, lot wow. of and that's an actual reflex where your diaphragm. So normally what happens is when you eat, your gut fills up with food, your diaphragm should actually go up and make space for all the food in your body. And in people with abdominal phrenic dyssynergia, what happens is the diaphragm actually goes down, kind of pushes the food out and you actually feel more bloated after you eat. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a reflex that you can train through something called diaphragmatic breathing. Mm-hmm. I think there are definitely foods that can cause bloating and try to identify those things, but all bloating is not necessarily due to an individual food or a certain type of food. So to try to see if, is it all food or is it specific foods to try to understand that better? Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Another professional that's talking about diaphragmatic breathing. Like I feel like I've had a physical therapist on to talk about it, an mm-hmm. actual therapist and now a GI doctor. I feel like, again, one of those basics that must just help with everything. 
Exactly. I, everybody yeah. should do diaphragmatic breathing. I, it's not something that's bad for you. That maybe that's a gut health trend I should promote. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. With bloating, I find it too. A lot of my clients that deal with bloating too, they end up, they, they think they're bloating. And I don't know if it's just because it's been like overdramatized online, but they're really just like full. Cause they see their stomach, like get bigger after they eat and they just mm-hmm. ate something. So that makes sense. Or they end up like under eating throughout the day. And then they like eat this giant meal at the end of the day. And of course their stomach's right. going to hurt a little bit. So when we kind of spread those meals out, they find mm-hmm. that they don't bloat anymore as well when they drink more water. But I do have some client patients, clients every now and then who are just like, yeah, this still isn't helping. And so I think that's when kind of like to go to the things you're saying and and to look at those like specific foods on what trigger you and to look at the breathing. Is that kind of what you're saying? Exactly. Rather than like eliminating like everything from your diet again. Right. But I think what you're recommending, like small meals, kind of breaking mm-hmm. up your meals that can make a really big difference. So thinking about other lifestyle changes rather than eliminating specific foods. All right. Well, this was all, all a lot of great information and we could have gone so much more in depth on everything, but with all this information, like what do you think are one to two actionable tips or the most actual tips that somebody should take away if they're like, I want to work on my gut health this week because this podcast inspired me so much. Trying to eat as much like fresh, healthy, whole foods as possible and trying to have as varied of a diet as you can. So eating as many different plants and fruit and beans and nuts, I think that is probably the number one thing you can do for your gut health. I know not everybody can do that. I know a lot of people have symptoms related to that, Mm -hmm. but then if that's the case, trying to work with a dietitian actually who can help you try to expand your diet as much as possible. And that has benefits beyond your gut. It helps with your, um, depression, anxiety, it helps with your skin. There's Mm. benefits related to developing dementia, like cancer. So there's so many good protective benefits with having a healthy gut microbiome. Yeah. No, obviously love that. Cause it's what I recommend all the time anyway. And yeah, like you said, there's just so many benefits beyond just gut health. Like it all kind of comes back to that. And I have worked with clients who even are just like really picky eaters or something like that. And they're like, I really only like three vegetables. I'm like, okay, really? Cause let's think about other things. Like you really don't like lettuce. They're like, Oh, I like lettuce. And sometimes they just forget that there are so many other vegetables and fruits out there that they like. Um, what is your second biggest actionable tip that somebody should implement this week? I think going back to colon cancer awareness month. So I think really understanding your family history for GI cancers is probably a really important thing a young person can do to improve their overall gut health. Mm. Because if you know your family history, you may be able to get early screenings. Mm. Um, and you may qualify for early screenings. So I think just being aware of that and getting that information from your family um, can really make a big difference in the long run colon cancer. That's just with the colon, not the rest of the GI, right? Like not like liver, kidney stuff. Uh, like that. I think understanding the rest of it too. So colon, in terms of colon cancer, that's really what is GI's big cancer that we deal with. But I think understanding, you know, stomach cancer, liver cancers, just understanding that talking to your doctor about it, because, um, a lot of those conditions, um, can qualify you for early screening. Is there a cutoff age, are you saying then, like that you normally can't get screened if you don't qualify? Yeah, so screening in the United States starts at age 45. Um, It was recently lowered from 50 to 45. So that might be new information for some folks. Um, But, you know, I've had a lot of people reach out to me and say, well, 
you know, I have a family history. When should I get screened? So if you do have a family history, you can get, you can start getting screened at either age 40 or 10 years from when your family member was diagnosed. So whichever is earliest. So some people should get screened starting at age 35 or 30. Um, so understanding that can really make a big difference in your, in your life. And then if you're having one of those symptoms, does that mean you should like get screened too, or no, you need to wait till 40? Um, if you have symptoms, then you can actually get a diagnostic test. Okay. So screening is for people without symptoms. Um, but if you have symptoms, you should definitely get that checked out as well. Um, well, thank you so much. This was really helpful to me and hopefully really helpful to everybody else listening as well. Where can they follow you if they want even more information? Yeah. So I'm on TikTok at SoCalGastroDoc. Um, that's my only social media channel for now, but hopefully we'll be expanding out soon in the future. And I love questions. So send me a question and hopefully we'll cover it in the future. Yeah. And you're so good on, on there. Like I'll look through all your videos and you do a really good job of like actually showing a picture and like really explaining really good things and really well-spoken. So yes, definitely go follow her. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us. I want to plug our email newsletter as well. We put out so much content with blogs, YouTube videos, um, we put out weekly recipes, tons of stuff, um, and you don't want to miss anything. So make sure to sign up on our email newsletter. If you go on our website, it's kind of the first thing that pops up um, and it's free, but thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the millennial nutritionist podcast for daily weight loss tips and nutrition information. You can find us on Instagram at the dot millennial dot nutritionist and on TikTok at millennial.nutritionist. If you find this information helpful, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend who needs encouragement on their health journey. See you in the next episode.